Well, good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Hebrews. And uh, we are uh, moving along in our series uh, over this spring and winter break, and we're just sort of going to camp out here uh, for a good long while. Um, and uh, if you have read ahead or you kind of know uh, where we're going to be this morning, I want to preface you. I'm going to do something a little bit different than I normally do. Uh, we're going to sort of have like a biblical theology or a biblical overview uh, of angels, because that's what the text is dealing with. And then my hope is that helps us understand the text and why the writer of Hebrews in this moment uh, addresses the church uh, in this way. I wanna say a welcome back to many of you that I know have been traveling over Christmas break. I see some of our TCU students are trickling back in. We're grateful. Uh, we hope you've received counseling uh, uh, from the loss. Uh, we don't care what the Baylor fans are saying about you these days, uh, but we're grateful uh, in, uh, that you're here. Um, follow along with me um, as I read just verses four and five uh, for us as we begin in verse six. This is the word of the Lord for us, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. One of the biggest issues this week as I prepared is how do you uh, preach a sermon uh, that talks about angels when there's not a whole lot of, of application that would exist here in this moment? But it's a reminder as the writer of Hebrews writes to the church, in particular a, a Jewish audience in mind, who is under the face of persecution from Nero. And they're being put in jail left and right. They are walking away from the faith, if you will. And so the writer of Hebrews comes along and he says, hey, uh, don't drift away. Don't forget that Christ is to be magnified in your life, that Jesus is better than all of those things. Remember these things. And it just so happens that under the face of persecution, under the face of, of culture and people saying things, they're, they're speaking and preaching a gospel that really isn't found in the word. They're, they're talking about Jesus in such a way where there are some who are making the contention that, that maybe Jesus really isn't who he said he is. Maybe Jesus is, is, is an angel. Maybe he's the, the best of all angels. Maybe uh, he's just the same as them. Maybe he's a moral guy or a good, a good dude that, that teaches some good things and, and, and did some good things, but he's, he's not really who he says he is. Or he's not who he proclaims to be. And so it says later on in chapter two, and we'll see this in the coming of the weeks, he says, therefore, because of all these things, be careful, friend, that you don't drift away that you don't listen and, and begin to believe all the wrong things and you begin to drift away and, and you begin to walk away from the faith. You become inundated uh, with all the things that culture is saying. Now, I can pretty much guarantee that for many of you that are here today, probably watching online, there's probably not any of you in this moment that are, that are struggling with what we would just call angel worship. You don't have altars in your home. You're not lighting candles, if you will. You're not worshiping these angels. And so you go, what, do you, what in the world do you, you do with a, with a text like this? Well, many of us don't struggle with, with worshiping angels, though there may be some of you that are closet angel worshipers that we don't know about yet, and we'll figure that out later. But the reality is what the text is speaking to at large is he's reminding them to not put their faith and to not look to the things that are not of God. In other words, what he's telling the church in this moment is he's saying, listen, all of us, whether it be angel worship or something else, all of us have tendencies at times to worship things that are not God. All of us have, have idols that exist somewhere within the deep recesses of our hearts, and these are the things that we often find ourselves running to, to the neglect of God. 
the things that we have elevated above him, the things that we would say, not really Christ be magnified in my life, but, but this thing or this person or this relationship or this dream or this idea, let that be magnified in my life. One author put it this way, or one of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, he, he asked the question in one of his books, he says, what is an idol? He defines it simply by, by saying this, an, an idol is anything that is important to you or more important to you than God. It's anything that, that absorbs your heart, that, that captivates your imagination more than the Lord our God. It's anything that, that you seek to give your attention to, to, to the neglect of, of the promises and the word of God, to the neglect of the gospel as applied to your life on a daily basis, not just in a prayer that you prayed at vacation Bible school or youth camp one day, the gospel that has implications for you right now in this moment. But anything in your life that you've given your time to and attention to, to elevate it to a status that, that is above God. Listen, it's not wrong to focus your attention on things and the enjoyment of, of things that God gives. The problem comes when that thing somewhere subtly within our lives, subtly within our heart's affection and time, it slowly begins incrementally to elevate itself above God himself. And we can do that with any number of things. And so the writer of Hebrews begins to address a group of people who had elevated, in this case, the idols that existed in this moment, they began to elevate the worship of angels. Now simply put, a, an angel in the, in the Greek and the Hebrew or the Aramaic, whatever word you pull it from out of the Old or the New Testament, essentially it means the same thing. There's consistency between Old and New Testament. It just means messenger. One who delivers a message one who has been sent by God with a message to proclaim something. And, and we see this throughout the Old and the New Testament in very specific instances. We see angels all throughout the scripture. And, and no, angels nowhere in scripture have little halos that exist over their heads. Sometimes they may have the appearance of, of looking like aliens or something out of a, of a Marvel world or a DC world. Oftentimes there's a reason why it says when human beings encounter angels, it says they were absolutely terrified. And so these angels exist, but a couple of things that I want you to know about angels that help us understand what we see here in Hebrews 1, 4 through 14. Number one is this, angels are created spiritual and moral beings. They are first and foremost, they, they are like God in that they are spirits. They are like God in that they are spirits, but yet they are unlike God in that they are created like us. They are moral. We know that a, a group of angels, a whole host of angels in 2 Peter, they, they fell from their lofty position, if you will, as they come and they worship before the God. And so, in other words, they, they made a choice. They executed a, a decision. And so they are therefore moral beings, though they are spiritual. Sometimes these angels will, will appear in what we perceive as bodily form. They'll appear in scripture. We see this in Matthew 28 and in Hebrews 13. Angels are created spiritual and moral beings. Number two is this. Angels, they lead in the heavenly realms. 
to get a little bit of uh, Pentecostal on you or a little bit more charismatic, there is such thing in the scripture called a, a heavenly realm. And, and what we see that exists within the New Testament in particular, he speaks of, or they speak of angels as having thrones. As these angels, some having dominions, as some being rulers and, and authorities, if you will, according to Colossians 1, verse 16. And so they're not just these spiritual beings. They're, they're not, as you would see depicted oftentimes within Renaissance art, they're, they're sitting around floating on the clouds, this nice little chubby little cherub. Why they're always chubby, I don't know in those pictures, but, but there they are floating on the cloud, eating whatever it is they like. They're, they're often depicted as that in all the wrong ways. They, they lead in the heavenly realm. And yet at the same time, angels sit above us in the created order, but the reality is it says one day you and I, we will judge the angels. It says that they sit above us in God's created order according to Hebrews 2, 7, but one day according to a letter in 1 Corinthians, it says Christians will be the ones that will judge the angels. We will be the one that, that brings apart that judgment and brings forth that judgment and condemnation before them, but yet they are not the same as people. And fourthly, they carry out God's plans in ways that we cannot. They execute throughout scripture, they, they execute judgment oftentimes on the people of God. We, we see this in 2 Samuel 24. We see in the, in the book of Chronicles that, that angels are sent and they completely annihilate armies. They, they obliterate the Assyrians. The angel of the Lord is sent to, to do God's bidding in all these times to kill these people who would come up against the Lord our God and they are worshiped in, in a very peculiar and very special way. We, we see them at the throne of God in Isaiah 6. They, they worship and, and they have these strange figures and they, and they look quite different. They are certainly special beings and certainly important, but in contrast to the fellows, uh, the friends that we have that existed in the time of the writer of, of Hebrews, they fall into the false trap of worship of these beings, just as you and I fall into the false traps of the idols that exist within our hearts. And so then what the writer of Hebrews does in verse four all the way through 14, he says, listen, as wonderful as these angels are of all the magnificent things that they can do, how deeply you cherish and care for the idols and the things in your life that you worship, what he begins to do as he follows up from last week, he begins to give us five separate reasons as to why Jesus is better, why he is greater than, than those created beings why he is greater than, than these angels that they have come before, that their friends have convinced them that perhaps Jesus was, was just like all the rest of the angels. First, what he does, I want you to see in verses four and five, his name that he gives. But the text says, we go back and look at it, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent to theirs. According to Jewish thought, According to, to even modern thought, names, they mean something oftentimes. We, we give names to, to individuals to signify things. To every one of my, my kids or my children, they, they have a name. And, and in that name, it means something. And it's what Haley and I pray over our kids on a, on a regular basis because we want them to become that thing that we've named them after. We want to see that attribute or that character trait in their life exist for all the days of their life. And it says that he has been given 
the name that is more excellent to theirs. He says, you are, verse five, my son, today I have begotten you. Now, this past weekend, my family was, we were gifted a, a night away. And so as a family, we got to travel to a place in, in DFW where uh, we went and we enjoyed an overnight stay. And, and then in this attraction that we were at, it had this indoor water park. And there we were yesterday and, and Friday night, we found ourselves surrounded by every child known in existence in Grapevine, Texas at this water park. Every family and all of DFW except you converged at this moment, at this resort, because they knew that we were coming. And I found myself at one point abandoned by my wife and, and all of my other kids. They were going on the, on the big kids' slides, and, and I had all by myself in a, in a kid's pool about the size of this stage all the way up to the baptistry. It was just me and, and little Lucy and 5,000 other kids swimming in this pool. Now at one point, um, uh, I looked up and she went down the slide and I sort of walked over there in about two or three feet of water and we came down the slide and, and eventually I just sort of made my way over because Lucy, if you know Lucy, she, she's okay with just doing her own thing. She's extroverted, but she's introverted. She loves being around people, but then she'll disappear and you'll find her over on the side sticking her finger in sockets and she's completely content with those kind of things. She, she has a mixture of, of all personalities and, it, and at one point I was talking to this other dad and, and he had that look that a dad has as you're standing there and you're like, man, I'm so glad my kids are happy right now. You know what I mean? Like, I, my kids are having fun, I, I'm enjoying being here, and we, we start talking, and, and I look up, and, and Lucy's about 15 feet away from me, and, and she's looking around, and she's wandered off, and, and all of a sudden, Lucy can't find me. And I see her, and I see her call out my name, and, but she doesn't say, Drew, she, she says, Dad, Dad. She looks at me, she looks at me dead in the eyes at one point, then looks past me like, that's not my dad, I'm, I'm still confused. And so then I did what any dad would do in that moment. I abandoned my daughter. No, I'm just kidding, I didn't do that. <laughs> I began to call Lucy's name. And I began to say, Lucy, Lucy, Dad's, here, and I began to, to wave my arm up in the air, and then she saw me, and then she, she made her way back over there. Why? Because she knows the voice of her father. She knows the voice of her father, and, and she knows the name that, that her dad and, and her mom had given her. So when I say Lucy, and she, and she hears my voice, she, she instantly is drawn back to me, and she, she waddles back over there in the water and gets near me again and, and kind of grabs onto my foot there for a moment as, as five screaming babies uh, flew by us in the, in the pool. She knew, my she knew her name, and she knew the voice of, of her dad that would call her name. Well, how much greater is it in this moment where he says this, this Jesus who has been diminished by this worship of, of idols, this worship of, of angels, he's, he's been given the name. Which angel did I get? Which angel did I ever say, you are my son and today I have begotten you? And so he gives him the name. He goes on in verse six and, and I want you to see the honor that he bestows to him. He says again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Nobody worships or should worship angels. 
The fallen angels are, are worshiped according to scripture. They, they've run after their own uh, moral desires and saying we can be like God or be better than God, but no one worships angels. And yet he says, let all of God's angels worship him. He is the name. He is the person. He is the Lord. He is the God. He is the only one that is worthy of our affection. He is the only one worthy of our attention. He's the only one worthy of our songs and, and how we think and, and how we feel. He is the one and only that is worthy of those things because it is his name and it is his honor. But then notice he goes on in verses seven through nine. I want you to see his status that he gives. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers of flames of fire. But of the sun, he, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In other words, he, he quotes Psalm 104 here in these verses quoting it regarding the, the angels that God has created and brought into existence. They merely exist to be servants of the Lord on high. They're the ones that serve him, not the other way. Notice he says these angels are, have winds and ministers of flame, of fire. We, we see this in Judges 13. You remember the story? We all heard of the prophet in the Old Testament, Samson. The one who had incredible strength and would defeat armies with, with the jawbones of, of donkeys. And we see in Judges 13, the birth of Samson, where his mom and his dad were, were given a promise by the angel of the Lord. And they were called to, to create an altar and to worship. And so they, they create this altar. And at the end of Judges 13, we see this angel that, that he manifests himself in this weird, freaky way. And he appears through the fire and he ascends into the heavens in this moment. These angels are simply the, the winds and they are ministers of the flame of fire. But then he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter of right, righteous uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. When we finished our trip yesterday, we decided to take our, our, our littles, affectionately known as Duke and Lucy, and we took them into the gift shop. And in this gift shop, they got all kinds of different things and, and they're looking around and it's a little bit overwhelming for little kids. And, and wouldn't you know that, that my little Duke, he, he looks off into the corner and he eventually finds this basket. And inside this basket, I had no idea what it was, but I turned around and I looked as Duke was grabbing the largest scepter slash sword slash thing that I can hit dad and big brother with later that lights up and makes noise and all of these things. And he's like, yeah. And then we pushed the button and it didn't work, so we're like, put it back in the basket. And he's drawn to, to those kinds of things and, and those moments. And, and what the writer of Hebrews is doing in this moment, he's saying he's the one that, that rules and reigns with his scepter for forever and ever. No, no angel rules, no, no idol that exists within your heart will be forever, will be for eternity. It, it goes away and it's, and it's fleeting. And so he reminds them of his honor. He reminds him of his status. And then he reminds him in verses 10 through 12 of his existence. He says, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your ears have no end. Theologians call this term, they, they say that Jesus, or, the, or God in particular, he's immutable. And when you're immutable, it means you never change. 
It means the, the same God that, that you sung about 10 years ago or, or the first time you could sing a song in, in church. He's the same God today. But he doesn't change with the winds. He, he doesn't change when there's turmoil. He doesn't change when there's wars and regi regime changes. He, he doesn't change when new politicians come in. He, he doesn't change when, when your city's in trouble or your state's in trouble. He, he doesn't change when in your relationships they, they fall apart. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is immutable. He is, he is unchanging. It's the reason why we can say he's He's faithful. You see, unfaithful people, they, they change. Unfaithful people, they, they go against their promise. Unfaithful people don't follow through, but, but yet he always honors his promise. He always follows through. He is always faithful. He is immutable. He is always there. The, the heavens, all of these things in the very beginning, they are the work of your hands. They will never wear out like a garment. Just as you and I, we, we change clothes based on season, or you change clothes because you, you lost weight, or you, or you gained weight, or you change clothes because you, you have a new sense of style. These garments of, of righteousness, these garments of, of holiness that exist in the character and nature of God, they, they never change. They are always the same, and your, ears, your, your years will have no end. As I read and read that this week and that concluding phrase in verse 12, your years will have no end. It's a reminder, I think, in this moment of time for, for you and I that this, this life that we're living right now, the very existence that God has, has this moment that he's brought you into existence, the breath that you're breathing, the fact that your heart is beating now in this moment, this is nothing in light of eternity. The 70 years that, that you get to live or the, or the 90 plus years or the 40 years that you live or the 20 years that God gives you, whatever it is that, that he gives you, whatever length of time that you have are absolutely nothing in light of eternity and being with him. Why? Because he is eternal and his reign, it never comes to an end. And one of the reasons why I love the book of Hebrews is this theme that we saw last week. It's this theme that we see here in this moment, the supremacy of Jesus in all things, in every aspect of, of your life and in the life to come. Verse 13, he, he says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, would you sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies a, a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Which one did he, would he say that to? The more pointed question for you and I this morning is not so much which angels did he appoint a footstool. When you put your feet up, when you go home, you, you rest your feet, why? Because the work is finished. You have your favorite recliner in your living room or your game room and you, and you go and you sit on that recliner and you, and you put your feet up, why? Because it signifies that the work that you've done, it is finished, it is time for rest. And in this moment he says, this Jesus, which angel did I ever say, come and, and Put your feet up beside me for your work is done. No, he said that to no one. Why? Because it was always Christ and his work. And the reality of his, of his word is that the work is, is finished. He is supreme and, and he is above all things. The gist of Hebrews 4, 4 14 is simply this. Christ rules and angels serve. Christ rules 
and the angels serve. Christ rules, he reigns, and the idols in your heart, they don't even serve you, but they serve themselves. And they feed themselves. And they build off themselves. And so the writer of Hebrews, he emphatically says this Jesus is better than all other things. This Jesus is supreme above all things. This supremacy means he is equal with God the Father in all of his attributes. The writer of Hebrews goes on and he says the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He is infinite. He is boundless in all of his excellent ways. The supremacy of Christ and his eternality. And the idea that, that he, there never was a time when he was not. He always was and he always will be. His self-defining, ever-existing substance that will always be there. This Jesus who is supreme, that he never changed. He is constant in all of his virtues. He is constant in all of his character. He is constant in all of his commitments to you and I. Every promise that he's made, he, he will follow up on that promise. Every virtuous thing about him, he will never cease being those things. He is supreme, the supremacy of Jesus' knowledge and understanding. It surpasses the, the internet and whatever it is that you could Google. It surpasses the Library of, of Congress. It per, per, surpasses the, the Farmer's Almanac or the greatest physicist that's ever existed. And it makes all of that collective wisdom, makes our wisdom look like we hadn't even gotten out of the first grade yet. He is supreme in all of his ways and all of his wisdom. He's, he's never been confused or perplexed by a situation because he is so wise. It's never been complicated to him in his wisdom, and he, and he never had to sit down with a council of men or women and ask for their advice. Why? Because his, he is supreme in all of those things. He is supreme in his wisdom. And friends, let me tell you, he is supreme in all of his authority over heaven, over hell, and on this earth, that he needs no permission from you or from me that he removes kings, that he sets up kings, that he removes presidents and he brings about presidents, that he removes congressmen and congresswomen and he brings in congressmen and congresswomen. He removes mayors and he brings in mayors. He removes pastors and he brings in pastors. He removes staff and he, and he brings in staff. He, he removes and does as he pleases, as he wishes, as he wills because friends, he is, he is sovereign in all things. And so what the writer does is he says, you're, you're running to these things that are less than him. You're running to these things that are less supreme than, than Christ in particular in this moment. You're running to these, these angels. But, but what he does magnificently in this moment, he says, in comparison to, to all of those things, friends, in comparison to the things that you might find yourself running to today, friends, he is more supreme and he is and always will be better. Pray with me. Lord God, we, we thank you that you give us words like in the book of Hebrews that sometimes don't seem like they, they hit us where we are, but Father, we know that your, your word is always applicable, it is always right, it is always good. And Father, we wanna take a moment just that you would be 
magnified in our life, that you would be glorified in our life, that we would make much of your son Jesus, for it is through him that you offer salvation. It is through him that we have redemption. It is through him that we have forgiveness of our sins. And so, Father, we, we just say thank you. We pray that we'd be overwhelmed with your supremacy in this church, with your supremacy in our life, in our homes, on our college campuses, in our fraternities or sororities, in our jobs, wherever you, you have us, Lord God, we, we pray that we would just make much of you for you're worthy of it. So help us now as we pray. Help us now as we praise you, as we seek to honor you with our lips and our songs, Father, that you have put on our hearts. And so we ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.